from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james i have been following this guy i feel like forever like he started his blog before i was blogging it's farnham street fs.blog of shane parish and his book Clear thinking, turning ordinary moments into extraordinary results really is the best distillation of how to think clearly that I have read. It talks everything from mental models to what stops you from thinking clearly. You know, he's got these various little meditations or think exercises on how to find your way to the best decision. Well, I'll, I'll let him describe. He's also got a lot of great stories. He's worked for a three-letter intelligence agency and here is Shane Parrish. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I'm excited to talk to you, man. Longtime fan. I mean, we talked a few years ago. I don't even know if you remember that over email. I think it was like five or six years ago. Was it? Let me let me just check because I feel like I've been reading you forever. 
Like when when did you start your blog? It was at least like 15 years ago. Oh yeah, it was like 20 2008 I think in one way or another yeah. 2009. Yeah. And we talked a long time ago. I remember I was going to look it up actually. I just didn't have time, but I remember talking to you. Well, I've been a huge fan for forever and you have a new book out, Clear Thinking. But what got you start So Clear Thinking is all about decision-making and, and examples from your life, from the lives of others. And you give a lot of uh, criteria for clear thinking, which I want to ask you about. But what got you started on this path? What, I'm so glad we could talk. Like, what, what got you started doing your blog? Because you had one of the first blogs that really stood out for me. Well, I started working at an intelligence agency in 2001. And, you know, everything changed after September 11th. Nobody had really taught me how to make decisions, and yet I was thrust into sort of these positions of authority and responsibility as a necessity. It wasn't like I was I was competent, and you know, uh, people identified that it was like, oh my god, we have to do all this stuff here. You're doing this now, and I, I felt so blindsided by this, and I, I felt a big sense of responsibility to not only you know my uh, country and my team, but also to the troops in theater and everybody who is putting their lives on the line. And so I wanted to get better at decision-making. And there's no real way to get better at decision-making when you think about it. It's not like one skill. It's all these desperate little skills that you put together. So I started studying what other people were doing and how they were going about it. And I started this website and the website was anonymous because I can't have a profile at that point in time because I was working for a three-letter agency. They would have frowned upon that. I didn't have a Facebook page, no LinkedIn, nothing like that. There, you Google me, I didn't exist. I was some soap opera star in Australia. And I just started like dissecting what I was learning and trying to put it into practice. And the blog became sort of my scrapbook of reflecting on all these concepts that I was learning and integrating them and synthesizing them and putting them to use in real life uh, in order to make better decisions. And and can I ask like how did you how did you get to the three letter agency like it's a it's very hard to get one of those types of jobs for various reasons. I I know this and they they check out a lot of things about you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, at the time, the security process, it, it's changed a bit now, but I mean, they, they showed up, they interviewed my neighbors, they sort of talked to my teachers, my professors, my references, like they go really deep on you because they want to make sure that you're, you know, you're a good person and you're trustworthy. You're trusted with national secrets and these secrets can mean the life or death to other people. And so it's really important that they go deep in that. I was either going to work there or go back and do my MBA. I had no interest in really doing anything else. And this is like the hay of the dot-com bubble, right? Now, I had no interest in working for any of these big companies. I really just wanted to work there because I thought it was so cool. You know, I grew up with two military parents and I had this sense of patriotism that, you know, I want to give back to my country. I want to make the world a better place. And there's an obligation. I'm so lucky to sort of be born here and get all the advantages of, of living here. And part of me wants to give back. And this was my way of giving back. And anybody who knows me knows that I'm not going to stand on the front lines in a conflict firing a machine gun. That would be like dangerous to everybody. Uh, but I can give back in this way that I, it mixes sort of my passion and you know my desires and something I'm really interested in. And these problems are hard. I really like hard problems that are basically unsolvable. Yeah, and and you know you you talk a lot about and and this is throughout the history of your blog, but you but you really provide it concise summaries or, or kind of this distillation of all your thoughts in this book. But you talk a lot about mental models. You talk a lot about learning. What, what I find when people 
there's always a lot of discussion about cognitive biases and mental models, you know, dating from Kahneman and his work and just everybody now has some opinion or thoughts on mental models. But even knowing the mental models, like that you have certain cognitive biases, doesn't protect you from them. Uh, it doesn't protect you from those biases, according to Kahneman. Like he always believed that you can't avoid them even if you understand. Like what's what's a use case of knowing about mental models that's actually helped you? Well, so th that's a really important point, right? And that was one thing that stuck out to me. So here's Daniel Kahneman, and he spent 65 years studying cognitive biases. And at the end of it, he basically concludes, these are really useful at explaining why we do bad things or why we make mistakes, why we have blind spots, but they're not really useful at preventing them in the future. So knowledge of them does not in and of itself make for better outcomes. And so with the mental models that we've put together, these are just different lenses to see the world on. And so we have this series of books called The Great Mental Models. And the idea behind that was like, create an Encyclopedia Britannica sort of uh, type work for these things that are taught in university. If you were to sort of go to the 101 classes and you put them into use outside of their discipline. So a great example of one that I use all the time, I use it with my kids, I use it with the people I work with is, and then what? And so this is just a thinking tool that helps you think to the next step. So you're solving this problem. Well, tell me what the world looks like at this point of view. Okay, so we've solved this problem. What new problems have we created? What opportunity cost are we giving up? How do we think through this problem so that we know that we're actually making a dent in terms of what we're trying to do and we're moving towards our destination? So often we just think about solving the immediate problem. We don't think about the new problems we're creating. We don't think about the cost of solving those problems. A great example of that is uh, most people listening to this probably work for a large company. You know, they have a software program they really hate. There's one thing about it that drives everybody insane. They replace that software program with something new and they don't ask themselves and then what? So they end up with all these new problems, new integration problems, new training problems. Uh, but we didn't think down the line before we made that choice. So it's about consciously sort of understanding what does the world look like now and is that a better place for us? That's, that's a really great example. I mean, a lot of times you see companies, for instance, redesigning their website just because, oh, we should be with the times or whatever. But they don't understand that they don't ask the questions you just said, like, are we really going to move forward towards whatever our corporate goal is? You know, there's a saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So are they really... Do they really need to redesign? They don't really question around the question. And I think a lot of that happens when relationships too, like the typical problem in marriages often is that people have kids because they think that will improve the marriage. And, you know, this is a, a huge example of what's actually the real problem that you say to yourself, we need to actually create another human being in order to solve some other problem. So... And it creates more problems in, in the process of it. As, as you were sort of saying, redesigning the website, so often organizations are focused on speed and not velocity. So they're mm. focused on doing things. But I mean, I can go fast running around in a circle, but that doesn't mean I'm getting anywhere with all that energy. And so it's about applying that energy towards a direction, towards a goal. But how do you making... know what the right goal should be? Like a lot of people, I mean, this is a, I'm sure you get this a lot based on the content of your blog, which is someone comes up to you and says, I don't know how to figure out my goal. Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. But the problem is you have to figure it out, right? So we're, we're often looking to other people. And when other people tell us the goal, we sort of, the, the way that I relate this in the book is like we end up like Scrooge. 
right? Ebenezer Scrooge. And so we've read this story, Charles Dickens, we've all heard this. And what did he want? He wanted to be the wealthiest, most famous, most well-respected person in his community. And he ended up getting all of those things. But at the end of his life, what did he want? He just wanted a do-over. Because those things, he realized, well, not only those things don't matter, but the way that he was achieving those things were mutually exclusive from living a life of meaning. And so what I advocate for people to do is sort of, you, you can work backwards here and let your future hindsight become your current foresight. And the way to do that is to envision yourself, close your eyes, envision yourself, you're sort of at the end of your life. You're, you're lying in a hospital and you know it's the end. You can't see, but you can hear, and you can't talk. You're in a coma, but you can hear what everybody's saying. You're surrounded by the people in your life who are close to you. And what is it they're saying about you, and what do you want them to say about you? And they're not talking about the number of Twitter followers you have or how much money you have in your bank account. They're talking about whether you showed up, right? Whether you loved, whether you were, you played life by your own terms or you just sort of like followed what everybody else was doing. And so often we get to these ages, you know, it really dawns on people at 60, 70 that they just didn't, they weren't themselves. And there's a great book by Carl Pilmer, which is Lessons for the Living. And what he did was brilliant strategy. Just went around to all these people who are close to death and say, what lessons can you teach us about living today? How do we take your hindsight and make it our foresight? And I think the the way to do that is just to be conscious about those things. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be static. What you want at 20 is not going to be what you want at 50. But the process is that you think about those things annually to make sure that you're going in the right direction. But that direction has to be set by you consciously if not, it's going to be set by everybody else and you're just unconsciously going to be walking this path. And then at the end, hopefully you've walked the right one, but more often than not, you end up with regrets. And let's say you're listening to this and you're 65 years old and you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, he's right. You do this little meditation that you just said and and then you, start, you have regrets. What should you do now? <laughs> Well, it's never too late to improve your position, right? And so that's the thing is like, okay, well, all of that's happened. You, you can't go back and change the past, but you can start operating in a way that is more conducive to the things that you want. You can start making time for the things that you value. And this is one thing I do with people all the time, which is like, don't tell me your priorities. Show me your calendar. And what we say and what we do don't often match up. So if you tell me your priority is your family, well, then I should be able to see that. Are you home for dinner? Are you there for breakfast? Are you there when they need you? Do you go to the kids' soccer games? Do you have a date night with your partner or spouse? Are you putting in the effort? And that effort will show up every day. And so I think it's about matching. What do I say I want? How am I spending my time? Making sure those things align and being conscious about the things that you say that are valuable to you, making sure that you're picking them and not somebody else. So even if you're 65, you can sort of pause right now, take an hour, think about this, go for a walk, and then you can change things going forward, right? Like, I really want to apologize to this person. I, you know, maybe uh, I've worked with a lot of CEOs who sort of work their way up the corporate ladder in a way that is mutually exclusive from developing relationships with people. It's all transactional. And often they come to realize that sort of towards the end. And it's still not too late to repair those things. And it's not too late to do something about them. I like these little meditation exercises you have. Like, for instance, the one you just said, where imagine, you know, close your eyes, imagine you're on your deathbed, 
and, and go a little farther. Like imagine you're in a coma, but you could still hear everybody talking yeah. around you. And you know, you have another one in the book where um, this this lady is up for essentially the job of, of CEO and her rival for the job has essentially a better solution for the company than she does. And she's asking you about this. And, and, and you provide her with this mini meditation, which is imagine you own 100% of the company and you cannot sell for 100 years, which solution would you do? And that one little insight or, or basically meditation exercise gave her, gave her the insight that, that allowed her to get the job, which is that the other person did in fact have a better solution. She acknowledged it and her, her lack of ego in this and in, in acknowledging it convinced the board that she was the right choice for, for CEO. And I like these little meditations because whether or not you understand all the mental models and the confusions about, you know, the, the puzzling aspects of learning and, and solving these issues, doing these meditations are helpful no matter what. So two thoughts come to mind there. One, the meditations, why they work and why they're so effective is they allow you to assume a different perspective into your problem. And by looking at the problem through a different lens, you start to see things that you missed before. doesn't mean you get a full picture, but now you get more of the picture than you did before. So when you step outside of yourself and you imagine yourself, your future self, well, all of a sudden you're not seeing the things you see today. You're, you're positioning yourself in the future. And this comes from physics, right? We, we all learn how important framing is and relativity when we're in grade nine physics. I think the example they still use in the textbooks today is imagine you're on a train and you're, you're holding a ball and the train is moving at 60 miles an hour and all the blinds are down. Well, how fast is the ball moving? You would look down and say it's not moving at all. But to somebody watching the train go by, it's moving at 60 miles an hour. And so really what we're trying to do is step outside of that train and see into what's happening from a different lens. The same thing applies today. You're sitting at your desk. I'm sitting at my desk. But you know, if we were standing on the sun, we're moving at like 18,000 miles an hour or something, right? So like it, how you look into these problems matters because the source of all bad decisions and all bad outcomes is really blind spots, right? Otherwise, we would have perfect information. We would make perfect decisions. And so how do we acquire better information? And one way we do that is through these little meditations or thought experiments, however you want to think of that. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What's another good, useful meditation that you found? Uh, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll mention one from your book. You quote Charlie Munger as saying, I need to be able to, when I'm going to argue something, I need to be able to explain it better than the person arguing the other side. Like I need to explain their side better than they can explain their side. Yeah, that's the one that immediately came to mind uh, when you when you asked that question. Another one is sort of like, what will I regret, right? Uh, in terms of what am I doing today that I'm going to regret later on? And how do I figure that out? Is sort of like, if I were to continue down this path, is it sustainable? Is it making me the person that I want to be? Am I showing up in the ways that I want to show up? And you can use that to sort of quit your job or take on a new project or start a side hustle or because not starting these things is going to be this this sort of constant regret. And it's like fast forward five years. Are you going to wish you had written that book? Are you going to wish you had uh, started that podcast or started that business or switched jobs or done these things? And I think that that's really important to think about. The other one that I, I like to use with my kids is how do I position myself for success? And that's about sort of like seeing the future, but you're, you're using your own mind to sort of meditate into the future or thought experiment. Like I have a test coming up. How do I position myself so that when I show up, that test is on easy mode and not on hard mode? I like that. I, or, you know, I have a bunch of kids. You could say, I'm imagining now what I will, I will say to them based on this conversation. I could say, okay, imagine 10 years from now, you are who you are 10 years from now. What are you going to regret not doing today 10 years from now. Yeah, that, that's a great one, right? And the, the way that I came up with this with the kids is, you know, uh, I don't know if you have teenagers, but I have two of them. And one of them, you know, came in the door 
uh, a couple months ago, storming, you know, with his shoulders down and hands me this test because I need to sign them. And it's like this terrible grade. And he's like, I did my best and, you know, stomps by me and like slouches on the the furniture. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to talk to you right now. But later on that night, I was like, okay, let's talk about what does it mean to do your best, right? And explain this to me because you told me you did your best. And this is like such a an easy way out of these conversations. And so he sits down and he's like, well, you know, at 10 o'clock when the test started, I read all the questions, I added up all the points, I focused on the questions worth. Like he, he sort of went through his little algorithm for taking tests. And then I was like, oh, I understand what you're thinking about. We do this with decision-making too, right? We, we, we think about the moment of the decision and making the best decision possible. But let's rewind 72 hours. Did you study? No. Were you up late the night before cramming? Yes. Did you have a good breakfast? No. Did you argue with your brother? Yes. Were you rushed on the day of the test? Yes. So when you showed up, you were playing on hard mode, not on easy mode. Like you made it hard. You made that decision hard. And you set the circumstances by which you sat down. So yes, you did your best from 10 to 11, but doing your best is actually the position that you're in at the time you take the test. And so that's the thought experiment that you can use going forward too. If you're up for a promotion at work or anything like that, how do I position myself for success here? And that's like a forward future thought experiment that can change you. I need to acquire these skills. I need to volunteer for these projects. I need to make a closer relationship with this person because that's how we get promoted at work. Well, now I can start thinking and being proactive about the things that I'm doing instead of reactive. Yeah, in the, in the book, you use the example of Tetris, which was a great example. So in the video game Tetris, depending on how you play, there's always a solution when the when the block comes down. There's always some place you could fit it. But depending on how you played in like the one, two, or five minutes prior, it's either going to be very easy for you because there's lots of options where you could put the falling piece, or it could be very hard for you because there's going to be few options and the pile of pieces is way up high and you're going to mess up. Exactly. And that's the one thing that a lot of people miss about decision making. That it's sort of like counterintuitive having studied um if you will, like the blueprints of the people who consistently make really good decisions, I don't think that they're any smarter than the rest of us. I think that they position themselves so that almost all of their options are always good. And I know, you know, you're an investor. Look at Warren Buffett, right? He's got $150 billion in cash on the balance sheet right now. And so if the stock market goes up, he wins. And if it goes down, he wins. And if it stays the same, he wins. No matter what happens, he's in a position of strength. He's never going to be forced by circumstances into doing something he doesn't want to do. So you can also think of positioning as like the greatest aid to judgment that exists in decision-making. And... I like how with your kid, you said, did you argue with your brother? And on the first instinct is, well, what does it have to do with doing well on a test? Yeah. But it really does have everything to do with it. Like if, if your mind is not, you know, you, you talk about in the beginning, you talk about these four defaults the emo that, that will uh, go against clear thinking. So the, the emotion default, the ego default, the social default, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the fourth one now. Inertia. Inertia default. Yeah, yeah. That's because inertia is a little hard, harder word to think about, actually. It totally is. But uh, uh, like in, in, in the one case, the emotion default is what you're referring to. Like, did you argue with your brother? Like, that is going to get in the way of clear thinking when you have to make decisions. 
Yeah, it, it does for kids. It does for adults. You get slighted in a meeting. Your next meeting, you're not fully 100%, right? It's it's harder than it should be. It's harder than it was. Same as like traffic. I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes I get out of the car and I need like five or 10 minutes after this like just commute to work, trying to find a parking spot, all the red lights, all the construction, all of this stuff. And, you know, sometimes you just sort of like have to realize where you're at, but you can change these things, right? So it's like, did you pick a fight with your brother? Did you escalate? Did you put water or gas on the situation? That's the language that we use at home with the kids is like, it's okay if somebody slights you, you got to learn to let that go. But what happens is we do this too as adults. Like somebody says something slightly passive aggressive to you and then you passively aggressively reply. And before you know it, you're like aggressive, aggressive. But the problem is you're not thinking in any of these moments. Like if I were to tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, James, you're, you're, you're putting water or gas on this situation. What do you want to do? You'd be like, oh, this situation doesn't matter at all. I'm going to put water on this. Like, I don't care. But we don't think in these little defaults, right? We get emotional and we just respond because at the end of the day, we are animals. And just like animals, we have a biological instinct to be territorial, but that territory isn't necessarily physical territory for us. It's also mental territory. How do I see myself? How do I want other people to see me? So if you infringe on any of that by slighting me in a meeting in front of other people, I'm going to respond and I'm going to respond in a way that escalates the situation. But what I'm doing is reacting, not reasoning. I, I like that you had another little meditation in there. Like you can either pour water on this or gasoline. Like you take, your little meditations take things to extremes. Like you can either set this situation totally on fire or not. Uh, what, yeah. what are you actually doing? Well, sometimes it's funny because with my kids, I don't ever tell them what to do. I'm like, do you, and sometimes they choose gas. Like they're just like consciously like, no, this, this is a fight worth having. And those are important sort of lessons to learn, but with adults too, right? Like sometimes it is a fight worth having and sometimes it's not. Well, you know, it's funny. The living by example is, you discuss this in the book, is an important way to lead. Like if, if they're, like you talk about Mike uh, Abrashoff, I, I believe his name is, I actually saw him speak back in, um, nine, in, in early 2000, I saw him speak at, you, you might remember this, uh, you remember the company CMGI? Uh, was yeah. an internet tech company that yeah, invested yeah. in like Lycos and all these. So I was at a, a meeting that CMGI had uh, for companies that it had invested in, it was investing in one of my in a company I had started. And Mike Brashoff, who you discuss in this book, who was the you know ran this uh, uh, this ship that was failing, the the Benfold. Um, you discuss an example in this book where in, instead of telling people what to do in this one situation, he just did what he felt was the right thing, and then everybody started following him. Like he le he led by example, and I think as a parent and even as an employee, one one should do that. Your kids see everything you do. Like, yeah, it's crazy, right? Like if you tell them one thing and do another, they pick up on that hypocrisy. Even though they might not know what the word hypocrisy means, they they understand you're telling them one thing and doing another. I got this as a kid. I don't know about you, but like it always drove me crazy because my mom was like, don't put your feet up on the table. But my dad was there like putting his feet up on the table and didn't, you know, she didn't say anything to him. And you just pick up on these little nuances, but you model sort of the behavior you grew up in. You model the environment that you're in. Well, and, and speaking of, of models, you, you write in the book, uh, tell me your, your role models and I'll tell you your future. Now you've mentioned Charlie Munger. You've all, in the book, you mentioned some figures from the past. Who are like current living role models that you have? 
I have a, a couple of good friends who are role models in very different ways. Like one of my best friends is just like an amazing father. Uh, and, you know, he inspires me to be a better father. And so when I'm thinking about how to deal with a situation with my kids, I often do, like, I assume his mental model. I look at the, how would he look at this situation? What would his perspective be on this situation? Sometimes I'll call him and ask him. I mean, I'm super fortunate to be able to do that, but you don't need to be able to do that to do that. Elon Musk inspires me in different ways, right? And he he doesn't necessarily inspire me with his personality. He inspires me with sort of tackling really difficult problems and ignoring all the people trying to pull him down and just moving forward through difficult situations. I like, there's there's one aspect that I, and I haven't read Walter Isaacson's biography of him. I should probably read that. But uh, I like how when he was starting SpaceX, everyone said essentially, look, you're not a rocket scientist. You didn't study this in school. What do you think you're doing? Stay, stay in your lane. But he read a lot and consulted with a lot of rockets. He didn't build the rockets themselves. He didn't design the rockets themselves, but he got enough knowledge that he could consider himself very knowledgeable about rocket science. And and we were so often limited by what the institutions tell us, like, oh, you cannot do X if you didn't major in X or study X, when self-study actually has driven the greatest thinkers throughout history. It's, it's almost like the biggest lie that we're told, right, is that other people can tell us what's possible. And I, I don't believe that at all. I think, you know, we set the boundaries on what's possible. And if we start listening to other people, we're easy to manipulate. We're easy to sort of um, give up, right? We're just sort of like, oh, I'm not going to try anything difficult because I don't want to fail. Nobody's done that before. It's like, well, you know, nobody's put a, a reusable rocket in the sky before. Nobody started a business before the first person did. Nobody created clothes until the first person did. Like all of these things happen because somebody willingly risked looking like an idiot in order to possibly advance humanity. And individually, this is so interesting, right? If you think about this, it's almost in our individual best interest not to do those things, but collectively, it's in everybody's best interest if we all do those things so that we move forward as humanity. But it's that fear, right? Going back to emotions and how they derail our decisions, the fear of looking like an idiot, the fear of standing out, the fear of being that tall poppy um, often drives us to just conform to what's happening now. And if we do what everybody else is doing, we're going to get the exact same results that everybody else gets. So, so and, and, and you talk about in this book and uh, about this in the book in the context of self-confidence, like you need self-confidence to kind of overcome some of these negative thinking habits. Yeah. But what's the difference? How do you know when you're self-confident versus overconfident? Well, there's a couple of different types of confidence, right? And one type of confidence is earned confidence. You've been doing something for a long time. You know all the nuances, the ins and outs. And that's an important type of confidence. Another type of confidence is unearned confidence. And the unearned confidence comes from, like, I read a Google article about this, and I think I know everything there is to know about it. But the way I sort of talk to myself and the way that I talk to my kids and, and sort of the people I work with is you don't need enough confidence to reach the ultimate objective. You need enough confidence to take the next step. And if you're lacking that confidence because you've never done that first step, the next step, then you just have to think back and think about all the hard things that you've overcome that you never thought you'd be able to overcome. Like COVID would be a great example, right? Like you overcame this hardship. My, with my son, you know, it's like we were jumping off this cliff once and 
you know, it's a one-way door. We climbed up and like, there's no climbing down. Like it's way more, I was going to throw him in or he was going to go in, but like, there's no way uh, he could climb back down. The risk was way too high, just the way that you climb up in the rocks. And he's up there and he's like, I think he was like nine years old at the time or 10 years old. And he's like breathing really heavy. And I'm like, okay, calm down. Like, let's just get control of our breath. And, you know, he's looking down it's a good 20, 25 feet. Like it's a pretty high jump, especially for your first sort of like jump off. And I'm like, you remember all the things that you did for the first time, right? Like you went snowboarding for the first time. You were scared, right? You didn't know how to snowboard. And you just sort of have to work this confidence up in yourself, control your breathing. And I was like, you don't need the confidence to reach the bottom. You just need the confidence to walk off. And so th that was a smaller step for him, right? He's not looking down anymore because when he's when he needs the confidence to reach the water, he's looking down. When he needs the confidence to just take the first step, he can look out and see the perspective of everything. And, oh, you know, the instant, just so everybody knows, the instant he hit the water, like he was like right back up again, right? Like, I'm doing that again. That was so exciting. Uh, God, that sounds terrifying, that. though. I would never jump off a cliff from 20 feet to. to well, the he water. wanted to. Yeah, I wasn't forcing him to, but I was like, once you go up, there's no going down other than in the water. Like, there's, there's no backing out of this, right? Oh, my gosh. Right. But then, you know, that becomes a moment for him where he's like, and we all have these stories where we've done these things where you gave a presentation and, you know, you sort of, uh, you were so nervous about it, but at the end of the presentation, you were like, oh, I feel good about that. And so the next time you do, we never remind ourselves about all these times we've overcome our inner voice, our inner monologue. We never overcome ourselves, like remind ourselves about these times where, you know, we thought one thing and it turned out to be a different thing. Um, and I think it's important for confidence that we sort of think about the hard things that we've done before. And that can create this earned confidence, right? Which is, I don't, know if I have the confidence to figure out how to put a rocket into space, but I have the confidence to assemble a team. I have the confidence to like, what's the next step in this journey? And if I keep focusing on the next step, I don't need as much mm. confidence as I do when I'm looking for the ultimate outcome. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And so with all this stuff and, and with all your writing since 2008, how is this, has your blog personally helped you? Like what? Totally. What, like I, you, you, you know, you mentioned you advise CEOs and stuff. Do people read your blogging and, and now they'll read this book and they'll, they reach out to you and say, Hey, uh, can you help me? I'll pay you and you 
help me figure something out? Or like, how have you kind of worked this into your living? Well, two ways, right? So the blog is, uh, let's rewind for a second. How do we learn? So I have a, an idea that we learn and I call it the learning loop. And so you have an experience, you reflect on that experience. From that reflection, you draw compression or abstraction, and then you draw an action from that compression or uh, reflection or the compression or abstraction. And then you have an experience through action. So you go experience, reflection, compression, action. And this is how you learn. And most of the time we're consuming other people's abstractions or compressions. When we read online, we're not getting all the details, the nuance. We're consuming the sound bites. We're consuming sort of the micro learning and we have no idea how the context works. And the context comes from reflection. And so when you think about, um, you know, I can make a recipe at home and a chef can make a recipe at home. And if everything goes right, it might taste the same to you, James. But if anything goes wrong, the instant something goes wrong, a chef knows right away. Not only can they course correct, but they can taste mine and be like, oh, too much salt, too high of heat. You didn't do this. You forgot an ingredient. They instantly know because they've done all the reflections. And so that's where that sort of earned confidence comes from is doing the reflections. The website is my reflections in public, right? Like here's what I'm learning. Uh, I want to share that with you. And I'm reflecting on these different ideas and I'm trying to connect them in real time and they're not always perfect. Uh, but that's what I'm doing. So I'm taking these esoteric ideas and I'm trying to put them into practice and I'm trying to synthesize them in different ways. And that developed this this huge following. And through that following, I mean, I, I've done speaking. I've sort of helped a lot of people with a lot of decisions. I tend to be the person call, people call when they have a really tough decision to walk through and they need help. And that's uh, you know resulted in multi-billion dollar mergers for corporations. It's resulted in acquisitions, um, private companies in, in hundreds of millions of dollars and sort of, should I stay in my relationship? I mean, I've helped people with sort of everything, but I'm not telling them what to do. I'm just helping them walk through it and see it from a different lens and a different perspective. And, and do they, do you think um, a lot of the people you help, do you think they value that? Oh, they keep coming back. So I think they do. Yeah, I think that that's the biggest sign, right? It's like, okay, I helped you with this one specific decision. That's fun. And, and I try not to do a lot of this now because I find it very time consuming. Um, but uh, they'll come back and a year later and be like, okay, I have another decision that I think I, I need your help with or I think you can add value to uh, in a different way. And what was the time when you had a real fork in the road where you had a big decision to make and and you were able to use these techniques to to make the decision? Yeah, I think the one that stands out the most is sort of quitting my job at the intelligence agency and going out on my own and having no income and cashing in my pension. So, you know, imagine this, right? I'm uh, recently divorced. Um, I'm a single parent. I have um, a great job, a great income, a great pension. And I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'm, I, the uniform doesn't fit and I need to do something else. And then everybody in my ear chirping is like, you are insane. Like, this is not only the best job in the world, it's very lucrative. You have fun every day. Like, you ha why are you leaving? Don't give up this golden parachute, this pension that you have that's amazing. And I was like, you know, that's just not what I want in life. And so not only did I have to make a decision to sort of jump ship, I did that 
through everybody else telling me it was the craziest idea they'd ever heard of, including my parents. My mom literally came to my apartment at the time and was crying because uh, she thought I was throwing away my life. And she might have been right. I mean, it didn't work out that way, but uh, there is an alternative uniform universe where you know that might have been a terrible decision. And I think I also made... Um, I cashed out my pension. So rather than keeping my pension, I could have started collecting it at, at some point in the future. I was like, that makes the most financial sense and the most tax uh, sense for me. But like, I need the psychological pressure of knowing everything's on me and nobody is coming to save me. Mm-hmm. And so cashing in that pension was also like a very real way to make things tangible. And I lived off that income for like three years uh, while I sort of like figured everything out. And and you, so presumably it worked out. But like people said to you, "Hey, you're 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 having so much fun at work. Why did you decide to to leave? What do you think was the decision that actually led you to leave?" The problems were really fun, right? And the problems don't go away. And the problems are amazing. And the group of talented people are awesome to work with. I just wanted to do something different, right? Like I, you know, the uniform didn't fit anymore. I was in a less technical role, more sort of political, managerial mm-hmm. role, and that just didn't really align with the things that I wanted in life. Uh, I wanted more accountability for my decisions. I wanted less sort of. Uh, politics involved in things. And I miss the days of being close to the operations and, and the stuff in the early days that I was really excited about. And I just knew, you know, a lot of people stay, uh, they don't know when to quit, right? And when they don't know when to quit, they don't leave on a high. And I left on a high. Uh, you know, it's like that person who plays one year too long in sports, right? You go from uh, potentially being Tom Brady to like 0 and 18 in your last year. And I didn't want to do that. And, and the way that manifests itself in organizations is cynicism, passive aggressiveness, uh, work to rule, like all of these things. I didn't want to become any of that. I despise all of that stuff. So I, I didn't want to stay past my prime. Like right now, what's a good day for you professionally? Like what, what would, um, you know, obviously like, you know, when I was, First, starting to to blog personally, like let's say back in 2010 or 2009, around then, a good day for me professionally was a lot of people liked, a lot of people liked me, <laughs> so a lot of people liked what I was writing, and I would get a lot of you know shares and reshares and reposts, and people would comment yeah. on Facebook and Twitter and on my blog, and and that felt like, a, and and also I felt good about what I was writing, so there there was there was a quality component, but then also a quantity co- component, and that felt like a good day for me professionally. Like what's a, what does a good day right now look like for you? Well, in terms of feedback, it's am I useful? Am I helping people see things in a different way? Am I helping people um, take control of their life in a way that they didn't think was possible? Am I helping them get the outcomes they want? In a personal way, it's uh, I don't have a lot of commitments during the day. I have a lot of freedom of time. And you know, I can say no to things because I want to, not because I, I don't do things because I have to. And and I think that that is sort of really important to me, and that sort of freedom—that's the freedom I want. And but but you could be free and do nothing, right? So you you obviously choose to do things that move yourself forward. Yeah. What do you think you're moving yourself forward to right now? I want to make the world a better place, right? I want to put a small dent in terms of how to help people think, how to help people get the outcomes that they want, and. I just think like that's sort of what life is, right? I want to help other people be the best version of themselves. And I think I get a lot of reward out of doing that. And well, Shane, I definitely think your book, Clear Thinking, and 
uh, the subtitle is turning ordinary moments into extraordinary results. Uh, definitely does that. It's such it's it's probably the most concise book I've read about these types of mental models and and decision making and and learning and so on. And these are all areas that I'm very very interested in. It was just really well done. Plus your your blog in general, fs blog, uh, you know Farnham Street. What, what I'm sure you've written it somewhere, but I, I I don't know. How did you pick the name Farnham Street? And, and by the way, I hate that cliche question. Everyone's going to ask that, but how did you pick the name? Well, so the original website uh, was 68131-1440.blogger.com. And so don't go to that website. Somebody's actually like, I've said it in so many interviews now, somebody's picked it up and they use it. But the reason was it was never meant for other people's consumption. Hmm. And 68131 is the zip code for Berkshire Hathaway in Omaha, Nebraska. And 1440 is their unit number in Hewitt Plaza. And so it was an homage to them. So I continued with that theme. The street that their office is on is Farnham Street, hence ah. the name Farnham Street. By the way, there's a newsletter called 1440. Do they is that are they called 1440? It's like a news summary site in the morning that I get every morning. I wonder oh, if they maybe. do that. I don't because... know. I don't, I don't subscribe to that, but I bet you that might be it. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know. But okay, that clears that up on Farnham Street. I did not know that, even though I've been there, uh, and I'm sure you've been to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings. Yeah. yeah, what I, an experience that is, right? Yeah, like, it is. It's just it's always a story. Like there's nonstop stories out of that because there's so many smart people in one place talking. So, but Buffett and Munger, the, those were the two people that sort of inspired what I was thinking about because it's like, how do these two people consistently make better decisions than other people? And uh, what is it about them? And are there other people that consistently do that? And are there commonalities between that? And and you can argue, a lot of people do argue, oh, well, they're rich. It's easy for them to make the big, de good decisions. A, being rich doesn't necessarily correlate with future good decisions. And B, Buffett's been making those decisions since he was working in his living room as a you know 25-year-old. So, yeah. or it's his parents' living room, I should say, when he was like a 25-year-old. So it really is interesting to look at not even so much their decisions right now, but their decisions in like 1959 or 1962 when, when Munger and Buffett were more close and, and you know, those early decisions that they made, like, you know, Buffett's decision to, to go big into American Express, which was totally not his style at the time, and uh, or his decision in, this, in the early 70s to go into the Washington Post when that was a huge risk. I mean, the president of the United States was threatening to shut down the Washington Post and uh, Buffett, like, that became his biggest position. So and, and Munger, right? Before he ever was rich, when he first started uh, practicing as a lawyer, when he was like a junior, junior associate, he would sell himself the best hour of his day. And he used that hour to sort of develop himself. And I, I always thought that that was such a powerful... I didn't know that. Yeah, so he would book one hour with himself every morning, and that hour was about learning and developing himself. And that compounded over a number of years, right? So it starts small, and what do we know about compounding? All the advantages come at the end. And so you have these people who've made these choices, and these choices are somewhat counterintuitive, but they also position them for future success. So interesting. I didn't know that about Munger. I thought I knew everything about him. Well, again, Shane Shane Parrish, author of Clear Thinking, Turning Ordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results. Love the book. I hope people buy it. And and I hope you come back on the podcast. Let's, let's continue the discussion. I've always uh, wanted to hang out with you ever since I started reading your blog. So this is great. Thank you. I'd love that, man. Thanks for an amazing interview.
Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.